0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamari, Managing Director of Elkut Global. And it is my pleasure to have with us today, Thomas Knudsen. Uh, Thomas is a a good friend, great contact. I've known him for many years. He's one of the most interesting people I know, actually. And I don't say that lightly, he wears a lot of different hats, actually. On one side, he is the Chairman of Toll Logistics. On another side, he's also a director of Ruma Group, which is a family office. And he's also an advisor to several technology related as well as capital related funds across the world. So, Thomas, pleasure. Thanks for joining
1: us. Well, thanks for having me, Rado. We've known each other for a long time and, and equally, I would say you are one of the most interesting people in, in, in our industry. I think you've managed to do something which others haven't in the past is a community within supply chain management that connects both logistics providers manufacturers producers and so on so excited to be here
0: super so maybe let me let me briefly tell the audience a little bit about your career so you've you've actually you know you started from the army for a few years and then you had a long long standing career with with mers group yeah we, you had several uh, positions all the way to to executive positions you ran different regions for the mers line you ran uh, as a ceo of demco and then a couple of years ago, you moved to to Toll. You were the global CEO of Toll. Now, for the last couple of years, you're you're chairman of Toll. And then I, I mentioned some of the other things that you're doing. So, I guess what I want to ask you is, what are some inflection points to this very successful career? Uh, many would would agree. But when you look back, there's typically one, two, three points, yeah, that you can pinpoint and say, okay, this was some of my inflections that helped me be where I am. What are those points for you, Thomas?
1: It's a good question. I think the older you get, the more you think about it, because I found out in my career that there's a lot of coincidences that happen. So where many people ask for kind of a well-designed roadmap to get to where you are, rarely that's been my experience that it happened. So let me give you a couple of, of inflection points, but perhaps also longer term experiences that have formed where we come from. So perhaps I should start with that. So I left Denmark in 1992 and moved to egypt then i moved to dubai then saudi arabia u.s trinidad and tobago and so on so what i think my first experience was is this idea of cultures and the importance of culture so when you live in a specific culture you generally look at all other cultures and say they're strange they eat strange food they do strange things they're not like us and and i think my first inflection point was realizing There are no good or bad cultures that are just different cultures. And if you get passionate about trying to understand what they are and what they do, you'll have never ending learning around the planet. And actually you'll be a much better person because you actually appreciate the differences are are what makes the world a great place, whether you talk about morally or, or from a business perspective. So that's probably one which was not a specific point per se. I think if you talk about, like specific times. When I was working for Maersk in Dubai, Maersk at that point, they now have a a similar strategy, wanted to create an integrated strategy where they wanted to move from having the shipping line, the terminals and the logistics as three separate paths to integrating that. And at that point, they wanted to create an an end-to-end logistics chain or supply chain. And, And I was part of the commercial team that had to sell that. So when Maersk rolled that out, I became super interested in logistics and supply chains because I realized that while shipping was super interesting as an asset business, you were moving places uh, from from one port to another. But for most of our customers, that wasn't really relevant. They weren't looking at the transit time of a ship. They were looking at end-to-end lead times and logistics captured that. So this was back in 2005 and 2006, and, and that really changed my view of the world in terms of saying, yes, shipping is interesting, but actually the view from the customer is that shipping is just a small part of that. So I wanted to spend time on logistics. So I did an executive master's in, in supply chain management in Spain. I started spending time outside work trying to understand it. And I worked for commercial for logistics for a period and, and, and really enjoyed kind of the, the end-to-end supply chain. And then the last one, which is probably more personal inflection point, was that in 2016 and 17, I was offered a couple of, of opportunities in, in Mursk that were based in Europe. And they were great opportunities that, you know, I should kill for. But I realized that for me, the future privately and, and business-wise was in Asia. And so I said no to those roles, uh, which also meant that I had to reflect on what, what does yes look like. And that was a career that stayed in Singapore, where I'm now a singapore resident and, and i'm also a singapore citizen my wife lives in singapore our family is here so i had to reflect on what what am i willing to do in the rest of my career from a business perspective and they are merged, uh, for all the right reasons are moving people around uh, changing strategy and so on and i wanted to find a company that was asian based in asia but with a global perspective and they're tall really fit what, what i liked, and, and uh, that's why i joined toll a, a little more than five years ago and, and why i'm still there
0: super love it and uh, you're sharing uh, on the linear side is quite consistent with with the uh, with a lot of other executives that came on the podcast with people that shared also on our book I think that as we as we grow older, not that I'm, you know, not not that both of us are that old, but usually when you're younger, I can talk for myself, maybe we have this idea that it it goes linear that, you know, you do this job and then you grow, you do this job. I think that's hardly ever the case. I I remember to another CEO and he was saying that he actively tells his team like, look. Take it easy. I mean, don't don't be so stressed. Don't be so focused on the next promotion. Or you know, if you do a good enough job, if you do, if you focus on what in the, on the now, <laughs> and you do a good job, it will come. You don't need to stress yourself about it. And I think a, a lot of uh, especially high achievers are extremely stressed sometimes and focused. No, I need to be promoted. I need to get to this. I need to to do my next gig. But in in life, a lot of times things are not linear. <laughs> they are a bit of a monkey bark.
1: I absolutely agree with that and i think there's two elements to that one is that you know when i joined mersk the process was really that if you were a, a talent you would get into a new role every two years but that often meant that you missed the circularity of the business we're in right so you would be in a job for two years and you would either hit it when it was bad or when it was good and you didn't necessarily learn how to manage through a cycle of good and bad so you would often make decisions that were the right for that specific cycle but you wouldn't necessarily learn the entire cycle. So I think time does give you lessons that are, are hard to, to get if you, if you don't take the time. And I think the second part is that, you know it's, it's easy to focus on this, I wanna be in success in every job, but if you ask me about my key learnings, they were when I got it wrong, when I failed. And I think you don't build resilience by being successful in your entire career. I'm not saying you should actively seek out failure, But you should certainly embrace failure when it happens, because over the last three years, but generally in business, I think one of the key skills of an executive is resilience, right? That you can handle it when it gets tough, that you can keep your energy, that you can motivate the people that work with you, that you can see what comes afterwards. And if you've only had success or you've had a very linear career, resilience is not an obvious thing to develop. So I think toughness sometimes comes from trying different things and not always being successful and having different views of life
0: absolutely now bringing it a little bit to to logistic in particular yeah so it's you know you mentioned you you started in shipping then I love the story yeah with an end-to-end or with a supply chain view an end-to-end the movement of those goods yeah from um, how do they say in in, in food they say from uh, from farm to fork, I guess, is the meaning. How do you see the 3PL industry, Thomas? You as the chairman of TOL, there's been some fantastic years. Yeah, The last couple of years have been unbelievable for everybody in shipping, logistics, transportation. Now, as you mentioned, uh, maybe those, those two years of roughness will come or more, I don't know. But how do you see things evolving? And specifically, how do you see the 3PL industry maintaining relevance in a world where shipping lines are crossing into... MERSC or uh, you know CMA or there's different the different things that are crossing over you have the e-commerce and Amazon that are crossing over into 3PL so there's quite a few gray areas that are emerging
1: so it's probably a, a longer answer Rado, but but I think first of all I think there is a fundamental difference between what we do in in 3PL and what the shipping lines for that the airlines do because they are asset owners and the key driver of profitability and in airlines and shipping line is how do you fill your asset? It, it beats everything else. The, it's all about the asset and filling the asset. Whereas in logistics, it's about how do we deliver a product that our customer is happy with. There's very low uh, switching cost. We don't have a physical asset we can offer to our customers, except for within primarily warehousing and distribution. So especially in forwarding, it's all about, are you giving the customer the right price at the right product at all times? And that drives a very strong customer focus. And I think that makes us very different from the shipping lines. I, it doesn't mean that the shipping lines are not focused on the customer. It just means that their focus is different and it's more on how do I get the customer so I have a full ship. Uh, and that drives very much a pricing mindset of filling the asset but through, through pricing. So th- that I think is gonna be the challenge for the entrants that are trying to bridge both is how do you get that maniac focus on the customer at the same time as you balance your, your assets and filling the assets. And I think that is a challenge. So, so I think I'll, I'll leave that to, to the integrators to focus on how they solve that problem. But I think very much that we are still relevant because we do do a number of things for our customers, right? We, we ensure that their logistics chain is possible through using a large number of partners, right? So regardless, if you're the biggest shipping line in the world, you only have a number of services and you will have potential problems with your IT system or your equipment or your ships. We can offer that you can use any shipping line in the world or any airline in the world as a principle, and that gives us a lot more flexibility to pick the right solution for the customer, whether it's a price decision or whether it's a service decision. So I think the justification for the three PLs are clearly there. If you're talking about future and, and, you know, hinting at Amazon and perhaps the the disruption, I I think if we start by the the tech disruptors or or the digital freight forwarders or or supply chain partners, I absolutely think they're driving the industry in the right direction, because we are an industry that has relied on pieces of paper and stamp and so on. But I think there's also sometimes the lack of understanding of why that is, you know, we, we move businesses and products from a place that's very complex to a place that's very complex. And The people that we move it with, customs, immigration, shipping lines, and so on, in many ways do rely on paper and stamps and and processes. And our value is really navigating that system. And we haven't seen anyone who's been able to translate that into a digital product now. That doesn't mean that they don't have a place. It doesn't mean that we won't get there at some point. But I think why we are relevant today is that we combine the digital solution with a hands-on problem solving. And it's not like... We, in toll or our competitors, are not digitally uh, enabled, right? We do have uh, technology that backs us up and, and so on. So I think it's too easy to say that there is digital freight folders and non-digital freight forwarders. Uh, but I do think that what the digital freight folders are doing is pushing the, the classical, traditional, historical freight folders to move in the right direction in terms of getting better engagement with customers through uh, technology.
0: Mm.
1: And Then you've got Amazon and Let's throw Alibaba in there because I think those are the two, you know, 500 or 1,000 pound gorillas out there that are trying to integrate supply chains with their platforms. I absolutely think that that's a competition. But there are also a lot of customers who are not comfortable with that, right? They see this as, you know, handing over their business to somebody who will then control it from farm to fork. And for some people, that's not an attractive proposition. They want to be sure that they have data access to data that nobody else controls their data, and they have visibility through how their products flow from from farm to fork. And I think the 3PLs still have very much a relevance. So I think the Amazons and the Alibabas and other platforms will probably have a bigger pie and a bigger share of that pie, but I still think that there's plenty of space for independent 3PLs like Toll and our competitors to operate.
0: Two weeks ago there was the munich logistics fair and uh, a couple of weeks ago anyway. and then um there were a good of discussions i think this this whole trend of uh, consolidation mergers and acquisition will continue within three pls and actually there were quite a few of the executives and it's a clear it's a clear trend that emerges that big is not necessarily better. That uh, companies like tall, like other mid-size. Let's, I mean, I would maybe mid-size is not the right term because you guys are <laughs> multi-billion, but it's not. You know, it's not the huge, uh, the huge ones. It's not the DHLs of the world. You can offer a lot more customized services and a lot more personal, and a lot of the clients would still still prefer that. So I think there's definitely a place for that. Now I, I want to throw this wild idea that I also heard. That, maybe not so wild. That I heard that at the fair. CargoWise yeah and then WiseTech as a company is a system wildly adopted or fairly well adopted within the 3PL industry and I think if we look at the top 30 top whatever most of them are using CargoWise I think there's only there a very few that have not implemented it as a solution so uh, somebody said at some point what if uh, Richard White yeah is the, the CEO of CargoWise what if Richard <laughs> decides then how about I become a 4PL <laughs> and which they kind of could be yeah and um uh, and then he switches that system and the, all the data that he has to all of a sudden uh, integrate and have access to all the different rates, and then he, he starts to play the master of the <laughs> master of the system. So uh, asking you the hard question, how likely or unlikely do you see this, this happening, and what's your thoughts?
1: I, I think that's highly unlikely uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, in order to be a 4PL, you need to have three PLs two PLs to execute on your behalf. So if you went in and took every or the large majority of three PLs and two PLs and created a a competing product. I don't think you'd be very popular with those uh, as a starting point. I think number two would be that, if you look at uh, Cargowise and Richard, I think they've been very successful with what they've done so far. So why would you do that when your existing model works really, really well and you have the opportunity to actually expand your your market offering through going deeper into other segments, but really serving your your customers. those are a couple of arguments. I have several more why I, I don't think that that works. I actually don't think that anyone has been able to demonstrate that the 4PL is very profitable as a model. I think it can be part of a 3PL model or, or a 3PL or offering like, like Toll and, and, and others, but I don't think by itself that, that it's wildly successful. But, but I think the, the question to ask is probably that if the entire industry or big part of it is relying on a single platform as its underlying operational system, that creates risk for all of us. And that I think is an interesting question, saying when DSV, DHL, Toll, Siva and, and others are using the same operational system, what if? And that I think is a, a conversation that will probably start coming in the years to come to say uh, we're very much relying on a, on a single platform uh, to run our day-to-day business. Um, it's not different than SAP or Oracle in the ERP space, uh, but it is certainly the, the core system in most straightforward.
0: And I'm not sure that there's, a, there's an easy answer to that on that thing, because I'm not aware of another operating system that works as, as well or even existing.
1: I agree. There's a reason why CargoWise is very, uh, very successful. There are other alternatives, but I think it, our conclusion is that Cargo, uh, CargoWise uh, fits, fits our purpose very well.
0: Mm. Now a question uh, that that comes a lot uh, especially when talking about the role of the board uh, the role of the non-executive board uh, I mean now you're chairman and the role of the CEO in in companies I mean uh, it may be obvious for for some but you've you've lived through that transition yeah you were the MD the CEO of Toll and now you're the chairman of Toll so tell us a little bit what were the main differences what are the main differences in between these two two hats two roles
1: Yeah, first of all, if you ask most uh, academics and many uh, practitioners, they would say that the best solution is not to promote a CEO to become the chairman because they are very different roles and it can be easy for the chairman to misunderstand his or her role uh, or chairperson his or her role in in the future Um, because they are quite different. Admittedly, there's also a difference between being an executive chair and a non-executive chair. So an executive chair is, of course, uh, spending a lot of time in the business together with the CEO in, in actually running the business. Um, so, so that's different. But if you take the difference between the CEO and, and and the non-executive chair, I think it's important to realize that there are some specific roles that the board and the chair has, which is around governance. So what's the governance of the business? Uh, it not not in the narrow sense, but in the broader sense of are we running a business that's fit for purpose for the long term? And then all the governance around that. There is something about the succession of the CEO and and the leadership team. There's something about representing the shareholders uh, towards and together with management, but there's also representing the view of the CEO and the business towards the owners of the business and so on. So there's distinctly different roles that a a board and a a chairman has. It's actually quite a difficult balance to find, especially if you are the CEO or have been the CEO. So I can share my, my personal challenges, of course, that I can often see that there is something going on in the business where I think I understand it, where I may or may not agree with what the CEO has chosen to do. As a traditional chairman, you might not have that understanding because you haven't been deep involved. So you really have to to be clear as a non-exec chairman with a past CEO on, hey, I've got to stay out of this because it's actually not my role. This is what the CEO does. And the CEO has a better view of how the business is forming at that time. So the CEO must make that call. Clearly, if you have a lot of disagreement, then as a CEO and chairman, you have to sit down and say, hey, I'm seeing these things. Why are we doing that? And and so on. But it's important for the chairman to give enough space for the CEO and the leadership team to run their business. I think the value that the the chairman can do is, of course, to ask good questions. It is to ensure that that there is a good process in the board so Mm. that the board is has equal voices. So you don't have a specific part of the board that has a stronger, or weaker voice that you have people on the board who have different views, different experiences, so they can challenge and ask good questions. So a lot of, uh, you know, some people think that the chairman is, is supposed to have a lot of, of, of ideas and he's going to drive or she's going to drive the business. But I actually think that the role of the chairman is to create a great board and then ensure that the voices in the board, uh, board are heard equally and then you get to the best outcome of those. So process is actually quite important for a, for a chairman.
0: And um, so you mentioned some, you know, you mentioned this, don't get involved as a main challenge yeah, as a chair a chairperson versus actually being the CEO. I'll probe a little bit further. Any other common misconceptions that you've come across, uh, you know, right, regarding specifically the, the role of the board? Uh, there's, I, I hear quite a bit all the time. So I'm just curious if in your opinion, you come across one or two that stand out.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, a lot of people who think that the board or a board role is something where you meet every quarter and then you you listen to a presentation, then you ask some questions and then you get paid a nice board fee and that's it. But I think there's much more to being on a board than that. I think there's there's something about staying relevant. So if you have to be relevant on a board, back to my comments about how do you add value to the shareholders and to the, to the CEO is by having informed opinions or questions that adds value to the business where the ceo says wow i hadn't thought about that i had not seen that this technology is happening so ai is a good example of having something happening where having somebody who understands that can challenge the business so i think as a as a board it needs to be a well-informed board it has to be a diverse board and diverse can mean gender but it can also mean experiences background geography uh, industries and, and so on but it's really important that that the board can, can provide inspiration uh, to the CEO and, and challenge. And, and that means that the board role is not just about showing up for a quarterly meeting. It means being engaged. And And I think the other one is the board can be a good sparring partner for the CEO. So, you know, we have a number of different people on our board with different backgrounds. And at least when I was CEO, and I think it's the same thing with Alan today, it's great to call up somebody who has been the former CEO of KPMG and says, Hey, what do you think is happening within the area of so and so, or what are you learning through the other boards you are involved in regarding digitalization? And and often, freight forwarding doesn't get inspired by other freight forwarding digitalization journeys. But if you have a a chairman or or a a board member who is in a digital business, you might actually get inspired for what they're doing with consumers and banking, or what they're doing in telecom or whatever. So, I think having a a diverse board with different views to inspire the ceo is quite important
0: and i, I love how you said that um, you know the people think that boards meet every quarter get uh get a hefty sum of money and it's some sort of badge of honor i i think it's it's a very common perception to be honest i do come across in in our search business yeah a lot of executives say okay now you know i've been whatever ceo or, ceo or i've reached the pinnacle whatever that pinnacle is so now i think i should be, go on some boards because it's a good retirement i'm like well i mean in some ways yes you're not actively running a business but in other ways hey you don't just sit there and <laughs> i mean you you, you got to maintain relevance as you said it's not it's not a
1: passive movie yeah and i think if you look at it it's actually the same thing for the ceo if you look at what did it what, what was the role of the board or the ceo 25 years ago it was to make money and ideally you wouldn't you know get in trouble and get thrown in jail for, for making that money but that was really to a, a simplified way the role of, of the ceo and the chairman if you look at what has happened over the last 25 years in terms of just financial crisis financial scandals the responsibility as a board uh, towards uh, the wider uh, shareholder and stakeholder environment has, has increased, right? Now we're talking about climate change, sustainability, diversity and inclusion, safety. You know, as a CEO, as a chairman, you really have to be on top of a lot of things and really be well-informed because you are accountable and responsible. And, you know, the, the chain of responsibility for boards is getting further and further up. And that means you actually have to spend more and more time uh, being involved so no it's not just getting the fat fees and and i think ceos who want to make a transition have to really think about why they're doing it because just collecting a check and sitting and asking questions uh, there's much more to board uh, work but i think that ceos and, and former executives can be great board members but they have to be clear on what their value is it's not the fact that they were a ceo it's specific skills and competencies or views or backgrounds that they bring to it uh, but it's not just the title
0: now on the topic of uh, technology because because uh, you're involved with a couple and you're i know you're an, an advisor plus you're curious by nature and you're very close to so many developments uh, log tech in particular supply chain tech uh, has seen a boom uh, probably the golden years i mean uh, i've not been around as much as you have but the last 2 years has seen uh, some incredible sums of money being pushed into it. And now, of course, again, we are in the winter (laughs) of that. There's been a lot of also hype and the people that raise money off PowerPoints and not really fixing an underlying problem or uh, throwing a shiny object in there. I guess my question is, where do you see the biggest low-hanging practical fruits? I think when we talk about technology, it's easy to get lost in the shiny blockchain, you know, (laughs) changing, even AI now, yeah? but ultimately what is that thing that we have a problem with whether it is you know just in in shipping you have pieces of paper put it on digitally i mean this is a very silly example but what are some of the really low-hanging fruits that you think within logistics technology can fix and should fix in the next two years and startups should focus on
1: yeah so i think crisis is good because as you said there's been a lot of hype and i think there's been a lot of funding going into a lot of Of companies that shouldn't get funding so ultimately I think that it kind of creates focus on on exactly what you're saying is creating value at the right price, so I think that's that's actually good. I I think if you're talking about the problems to be solved, I think that's often where it starts right that you got somebody who's super smart and understands technology. And sees a superficial problem. so you know the supply chain or the logistics is inefficient and there's too much paper Okay, let me create an end to end tool that can solve all those problems. I can see intuitively that makes sense, but I think there is a a lack of understanding of the complexity of that and what are the problems you're trying to solve. So if you're asking about where I often see it going wrong is people are trying to, either they don't understand, either they're trying to problem, solve a problem that doesn't exist, or they're trying to solve a problem that's very, very complex and where they might not have a solution. And I think to your point that I still think that there is a long-term need to solve the end-to-end logistics supply chain whether it's visibility or whether it's the flow of data or flow of money, there, there is certainly a tool or tools out there that are, are relevant. But it's very important to understand that right now, I don't think that you can create that tool. I think if you're saying within the next two years, I think it's tools that solve very specific problems, right? So how do you digitalize a very specific process? So it could be final mile delivery. You look at some of the, the, the unicorns in the US that I think have done the right thing. They focused on how do we do final mile delivery where we get full visibility to where the product is so we can make real-time changes on delivery modes and and so on or optimize the specific process if you look at the digital freight forward i think the ones that are most successful are the ones that try to focus on solving a relatively specific and and clear uh, product and where technology is part of it but there is also an element of understanding the industry and addressing the industry so you know the, the obvious one that's come up the last few months, I guess, is how do you deploy uh, AI as a tool to, to solve issue, right? I, I think if you look at forwarding, um, 80% of our business is happening without a lot of problems. So it's it's a happy flow. And then you've got 20% that is is where you need to focus on your attention. But we don't spend our time 80-20 like that also. We spend more time on handling the happy flow. So any technology that can simplify the happy flow that just happens without interference and really focuses on solving the problems that exist. So I would say anything that's acceptable handling process management of the problem part of the supply chain that enables people to come into the office and instead of checking the 200 files they have on a ship, they're told that there's 20 files that are not going according to plan. What do we do about that? And that could move into other places. It's in the warehouse. What are the 20 orders that needs to go out this morning? Rather than okay, here's a flow of five thousand different things that are happening. So I think exception handling and well-defined problems are the ones that will have the most traction in the next two years. Mm. I don't think that means you should not focus on solving the bigger problems. I think you just have to recognize that they're much harder and they'll take a lot longer and and are very complex. So you're taking some bigger risk when you invest in that or you design products.
0: And and I guess it's back to the you know we were talking offline that that balance between what do we fix today and kind of what is the bigger picture in the future but you gotta move in the with both Uh, it's it's like anything it's like when people step into a new role you know great you present to whatever the uh, boss of that role is uh, your vision for the next three years but after six months you'd better show that you've done something already (laughs) that has added value to the company Uh, otherwise it doesn't fly
1: no I I absolutely agree I I think if you're talking about you know, the, the role of a leader, and the more senior you get is, of course, you have to look forward and, and anticipate and plan for what will happen next year. And, and if you're the chairman or the CEO, you're in some cases talking three, five, ten years out. But that doesn't mean you can ignore the present, right? If you're looking at what happened with COVID, I think we all realized that you needed to fix a problem immediately. And perhaps COVID was hard to imagine. But we all knew that that there was a risk out there that was called a pandemic, right? So perhaps we should have spent more time looking at the pandemic as a potential risk and thought through what that could look without having a specific plan. But we often end up focusing too much on on what is right in front of us. And and I I think you you asked earlier and reflection, the difference between, I think, the CEO and the chairman is the chairman is less busy handling the day-to-day. Most CEOs are really busy doing both, and they work very, very hard. As a chairman, I'm also working relatively hard, but I'm working more on trying to see what is three, five, 10 years out, whether it's technology or whether it's, for instance, the impact of climate change and what we need to do to address climate change. And, and, and then I think that's the, the luxury of, a, of, of being a non-exec chairman is that you have time to spend on looking forward whilst the CEO and the leadership team of a business are really busy ensuring that the day-to-day issues are solved
0: but also looking at it, um, on a recent discussion, um we had the Professor Sheffi from MIT on the topic of, again, being practical, yeah <laughs> and fixing for what is. I actually asked him, so you know what would you do if you were to start the business? He had started five businesses before which he sold. and And he told me, well, I know for sure that I wouldn't start in AI. <laughs> his point is like the worst the worst possible idea is to go and and start an ai company because you're fighting with the googles and the microsoft's and whatnot and plus it's overhyped so you know just go into an organization his point was similar to yours go into an organization work for about one year or just observe what's happening if you can and you'll find a million problems (laughs) that you can that you can practically address you know in your case you mentioned exceptions or whatever it is a very consistent pain that they have now no need to you know if you have a hammer everything is a nail no need to ai your way into a solution when actually you know there's there's many ways to fix it thought that 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 was a relevant ad now sticking to ai and and then linking it to skills and talent and and how do we kind of can we in the first place and how do we prepare ourselves for the future of work, uh, Thomas, and you know, for staying relevant as employees, as leaders, as executives in this world in which increasingly it seems that AI will uh, continue to do better and better. What's your thoughts?
1: Well, I, I think the interesting thing first about regenerative AI is it kind of came out of nowhere in some ways, right, three, four months ago. So if I'd asked you or anyone else that I involved in this business five or 10 years ago, and said, how do you prepare yourselves for a, a future career very broadly, not just within our business, you would probably have said, oh, you should be a lawyer, you should be an engineer, you should be whatever. And I think if you look at what is happening now, I think you could say that that something like AI will have a dramatic impact on on the legal profession because a lot of work is spent on reviewing contracts, drafting contracts and so on that can be done better by AI. So what's the future of being a lawyer? I don't know. And, and if you ask me, what's the future of, of working in supply chain? I'm not sure I can can answer that. What, what I do think I can say is, it's unlikely that what will make you successful today in the labor market is going to be successful in 20 years. So if you, if you think you can predict the future, I would probably say, where's the world going to be in 20 years and how do I set myself up for, for, for success? But I think it comes back. And we've talked about this before rather that what does a successful career look like and how do you build it? And for me, it's about, you know, AI will do a lot of things smarter than I will ever be and, and already is. So, so what's my, what's my unfair fair advantage? My unfair advantage is I can drink coffee with people and I can have empathy and talk to them and try to understand their problems and render my advice from my career and, and so on. So I think if you think about building a career, I think it's building a career where you have experiences that are different, where you've, you know, gone through tough times, good times, you can connect with interesting people and so on. So I know it's a it's a wishy-washy answer, and as much as I'm not giving a specific role or technology or whatever, but I actually think that the idea of saying how do I stay relevant is by leveraging what is the most human things, which is human connections. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't learn math and trades and what AI is and so on. Absolutely, but you'll never be smarter in the future than an AI engine when it comes to understanding what's going on with a specific process or whatever. But I do think you can add value by having some skills that connect people uh, going forward. So wishy-washy answer, but I think it's more about being open and learning about a lot of different things than rather being focused on trying to be AI because I consider that highly unlikely.
0: And I'll also steer the conversation. And uh, now we're reaching the end. I'll steer the conversation also in terms of the future. I know that you are doing a lot of work regarding uh, ocean ocean conservation. I mean, you're you're an avid diver. I think you, there's there's quite a few projects that you're doing in that respect around conserving the planet, conserving the oceans. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit uh, some plugs around the work that you do, and maybe we we get some more uh, volunteers for you from the listeners of the podcast.
1: Yeah. So we we talked about getting older uh, earlier. Uh, And again, I don't think of myself as old, but I think my career has changed from my early career where I was very focused on myself as how am I successful? Then I think it became about how do I make my team successful and enable others? And I enjoyed both processes. I think if you look at the last couple of years, I've started focusing on how can I help the planet being successful, if you want to call it that. And it's not like you know, there's some big moral. I'm a better person. I'm very religious. It's not coming from this, but I actually think it's a very exciting intellectual challenge to say I think we're facing a, an existential crisis for for humanity and for the planet. So, can I play a role in that? And and the interesting thing for me is that I think it's not just a question of running around and picking up plastic on the beaches or, or save a shark here or there because you know that I'm very passionate about that. But if you think about we having to get to net zero by 2050 or whatever you want to focus on. This will present enormous financial opportunities. People say that net zero will probably be a hundred to $200 trillion opportunity or cost. If you work in a business, whether you run a business, whether you're an employee, whether you have your own business, if you look at that, and you think that's a transition that is equal to, you know, one or two other transitions in the history of mankind, So shouldn't there be some opportunities there? If you were the first guy to invent the steam machine or, you know, the steam driven saw or, you know, the first car or whatever, the opportunities were endless. And my view is that you can still do a lot of good things in business at the same time doing, you know, very well for the planet, right? So how do you do transition to electric vehicles? How do you do transition to hydrogen, installing solar cells, reducing plastic waste? And, and even in the short term, some of these things even improve your p and because you're just taking waste out of your business. So I think that that's kind of how we think about it. But if you think about what I do personally, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate around this. I, I think it's exciting to work with other people who are passionate, whether that's in your corporate life or in your private life. You know, people talk about retirement. It's like, oh, you're going to go play golf. And I'm like, who wants to play golf every day? First of all, I don't play golf, so that's not an option. But number two, I think that what makes me excited and most people like I know is that you meet with people who are smart, intelligent, who inspires you that you can learn from, whether it's then family or, or others. And, and I, I really enjoy that. And in this space, there is a lot of people who are super passionate and very, very smart and who are dedicating their life to solve these problems. And, and I truly enjoy working with them. And at the same time, then as a family office, we do investments in this space. And, and as I said, it's both an opportunity to have a positive impact on, on big problems such as plastic pollution of the oceans or how do we change building materials in, in our supply chain um, to you know, going out and, and, and doing something really practical like, like stopping fishing or, or stopping plastic pollution or so on. So it really gives you a broad place to play. And, and I still think you can make a lot of money if you look at plastic pollution. This is one of the things that a lot of companies are struggling with today is that at some point they expect they will have to pay for that, whether it's through plastic penalties or plastic credits, whether it's because they can't use plastic anymore. So they're looking to say, well, how do we get access to that? And if you as an investor can present that to them in a way where we have a solution, you can make money in this space. So you can both do good and make money at the same time.
0: Well said. Final question. And you've already shared quite a few, but... If you were to think, you know, there's a bunch of uh, people listening to this that are just graduating, what would be one or two pieces of advice that you would give them to best help them in their careers, in their future uh, jobs and, and so on?
1: So I have seen many different career paths, so I don't have the perfect one. But I can say what, what, what I would do if I had to do it again. I think the first 10 years of your career from... Until you're 30, let's call it that, depending on when you start. But at least the first years of your career, just spend learning it. Don't have too much of a plan. Get out, get to understand how things work. Be, you know, be willing to do some stuff that might be hard. So you know, go travel, live in countries that are different than what you're used to, which can be difficult, but get out and learn. And some of the learning is not obvious. Uh, it might not take you down the path that you think is relevant when you're 22 but I can tell you that whatever you learn and whatever you experience early will form your future career. Then I see perhaps the thirties and I'm simplifying it in terms of years, but perhaps easier that that is the second part of career where you start narrowing in and saying, okay, this is what I'm really passionate about. This is what I'm really good at. This is what I want to make my place in my career. And then the rest of your career is hopefully benefiting from, from those years in terms of kind of building on top of that. But I think, the first 10 years, I always worry when I hear people who have laid out the rest of their life uh, because my best experiences didn't come from planning. It came from going, oh, wow, I didn't realize that I, that I needed to do this to learn something about people, about business, about culture or whatever. So you know, don't get too freaked out in the beginning that you don't have a plan or that you're not being successful. Sometimes failure and, and problems and struggles – Will make you a much better leader for 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 the future. So uh, so, don't encourage failure, but certainly when it will happen and it will, embrace it.
0: Well, like like the great philosopher Mike Tyson said, no, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So deal with it <laughs> and get up. <laughs>
1: and we will all get punched in the face. So so, so it's not like it's just a matter of no, time. No, I, that won't happen to me, right? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Thomas, thanks a lot for the time, uh, for the sharing, for the many great examples. It's been a delight. And keep up the great work and um, inspiring, uh, well, the new generation of leaders as well as doing all the interesting
1: projects that you're part of. Thanks, Radon. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcottglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five Star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.